please pray with me. Father, this is a day that you have made. It's easy to think of each day, this day included, as just an accumulation of of days that we have piled up that led us to this moment. But this is a day that you have made, and because you have made it, the possibilities of this day are endless. They aren't limited to what we've made of our lives up to this point. And so we want to just be open to the work that you want to do in us today, this day that you have made. Make us new. Renew our minds. Renew our hearts. Restore hope in us where hope has failed. Give us a vision of life under your sovereign will where we can just be small and let you be God. Let us be your creatures, your beloved children. That's where freedom is. That's what we want. Restore us today, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and happy Daylight Savings Time Day, or as it's been dubbed, how do I change the clock on my microwave day? (laughs) And just so you know, you get an extra credit for being here this morning, because according to ABC, about 15% of our wayward brothers and sisters did not spring forward out of bed this morning, so we'll pray for their salvation, all right? All right, turn with me to Ecclesiastes 3. And uh, today we're going to be talking about, apparently, what we talk about more than anything else, in the English-speaking world at least. According to an ongoing study by a branch of Oxford Dictionary um, that analyzes the frequency of words that are used on the internet, so it includes blogs, searches, books, articles, journal entries, and so forth, they, they, they have released this ongoing list of the top 100 most used verbs and nouns in, in the English language. And the number one noun was not any of these. These are all in the top 10. It was not person or, or thing or world or home or family or, or anything else. The number one word that we talk about in the English language is time. Time. We are obsessed with time. Number one verb, by the way, is be. So we are beings in time, and we are super aware of that fact. We, we are time-conscious, time-bound beings. Time is at the center of the human experience. It's part of every experience. It's why it's at the center of our language In fact, did you notice what else made the top 10 list? In third was year, and fifth was day. Measurements of time. Time is is the reference point that stays fixed at the center of our consciousness, and according to which every thought uh, is measured in some sense. We, We can't make plans without it. We can't order our lives without it. Time touches every dimension of our lives. It defines our deadlines, it fills our day timers, and, it, it, and we can't, like I said, order our lives without it because it touches every dimension of human life. 
And so it, it factors in, at least in the background, to literally every part of our experience of this world, of our memory of this world, of our anticipation of this world. All our regrets and fears are bound up with time. All our joys and hopes and thoughts and wonderings, all related to time. You're probably wondering how long this sermon's going to be. So you've got time on your mind. Time is in the lines on our faces, the color of our hair, or lack thereof. It fills every picture album as we look into the past at our kids, at ourselves, and think, where has all the time gone? And of course, time is how we come to know ourselves as human beings. Because to be human is to be a past gathered up into the present moment, constantly moving forward into a future we imagine ourselves inhabiting. But wherever we are on that journey from, from past to future, one thing is certain. And it's that none of us will stay where we are on this journey. None of us will stay where we are on the path because we are beings in time, and that means we're constantly changing. The world is constantly changing. Our relationships are constantly changing. Our circumstances are constantly changing. All the things outside of our control, which is almost everything in the universe, is constantly changing. And, and so we are, we are constantly becoming, and we ourselves are constantly changing and therefore constantly becoming future versions of ourselves, often coming as a surprise of uh, what we expected we'd become when you look back at your life. Have you been surprised at yourself? <laughs> That's what this old man was thinking, at least. So this is my past self. This is my present self. And according to an app that my kids made me uh, download a while back, that's my future self. <laughs> now, as, as handsome as that old man may look to you, I am not ready to be that changed. <laughs> I know it's coming. I just need a little more time before it gets here. And it turns out... I've got plenty of it. I've got about a lifetime's worth of time because I've been given a life sentence. I'm doing time. We're all doing time together this morning, and I'll be doing time till the day I die. We, we have all been sentenced to life in time, which is to say a life of transformation. That's what life is about. It's about transformation, becoming the person God made us to be. And that's what Ecclesiastes 3 is concerned with. The, this book, like no other book, confronts us with a sober perspective of life, not only within the limitations of time between birth and death, not only our mortality, but the changes within time, the seasons of our life that we will face that will come as opportunities of transformation. See, life is punctuated by seasons, seasons of, of change, full of new beginnings that lead to eventual ends. It's a series of endings, life is. And, and each season has its unique set of challenges and opportunities, struggles and joys, 
And in Ecclesiastes 3, we will see that each of these seasons, whether they're seasons we want to be in or seasons we've just been thrust into, all of them come with a new invitation from the living God to encounter God and to be transformed by God in whatever season of life you're in. What season of life are you in? Are you in the season that you want to be in? Well, this morning, I'm here to tell you that you are in the season that God wants you to be in. The more you can just live with open hands, the more not only will you be open to transformation from Him, but the more joy becomes possible, the more hope becomes possible, the more peace becomes possible in any season of life, even this one. So read with me uh, Ecclesiastes 3, and we'll read um, the first 15 uh, verses. No, we'll read the first 13 verses. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given the children of man to occupy themselves. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is the word of God. I think the the most helpful way to to see this passage is to take it as a whole and and to see the big picture, recognizing that there's two complementary roles that God has and that we have with respect to time. And you can think of it like this. You can think of it in terms of God's sovereignty over every season, God's sovereignty over time. And our responsibility in every season, in time. So first, notice in terms of God's sovereignty over the seasons. Notice how the passage frames human life. Not only within time, but time itself then is framed within God's sovereign will. First, it begins, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then it begins to indicate what it's talking about when it's talking about seasons. It begins to indicate it's not, it's not just talking about spring and summer and fall and winter. 
it's talking about the seasons of our lives. There's a season to be born and to die. That brackets out the season you're in. You see, there's layers of seasons. And you're in the season of life today. Isn't it a good season to be in? <laughs> now, there's some seasons within that season that are a little harder than just the fact that we're in the season of life. But that is the, season, the fundamental season that you're in is that you are in a season of life. God is giving you time. He is giving you breath. He's giving you opportunity. He's giving you life. And then everything after that indicates responsibilities within various seasons that are, the seasons aren't named, but our responsibilities within them are, are named. To time, a time to plant, plant and a time to pluck up what is planted and so on. We'll get back to that. But then after it indicates our responsibilities, it says that God himself, the reason we know it's responsibilities and not just opportunism, is that it ends by saying, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to occupy themselves with. In other words, God determines the seasons and he gives us stuff to do in each season. And it varies with each season. We have different responsibilities according to different times for plucking up, planting, keeping silent, speaking, embracing, and even refraining from embracing, and so on. So, in other words, your responsibilities through life change. And we're all in different seasons of life. Look around the room. As many people as you see in here, that's how many seasons of life there are. And it's good to recognize that not everybody's in your season, isn't it? That itself can cause conflict. But, but your, your responsibilities as a, as a middle schooler, for example, are not the same as your responsibilities as a parent of middle schoolers. Responsibilities change throughout time. But it's clear we shouldn't imagine that our responsibility is to determine the seasons as though we have control over time, control over the future. That's not our role. Thank God. Thank God it's not our role. And the, the, the author goes to links to say this. Eight times God is used as the subject of verbs in this. And each time it has to do with determining the times. But this is one excerpt of what we just read. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. Remember how the question began at the end of the poem of this. What does the worker have to gain from his toil. Remember what we saw last week. Nothing. We can't add it to anything God has already planned or take away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. It's like the, the book of Daniel says that God changes times and seasons. He appoints kings. He throws kings off the throne. He's the one in charge of times and seasons. So what it's saying is that all these seasons of life within the big season of life between our birth and death, they are entirely out of the scope of our control, but they are entirely within God's control, God's control. And our job is not to constantly and anxiously react to the outside world of circumstance. Our job is to see the invitation in every season, to respond to God, to ask God, what do you want from me in this season? Not to fix the world, but what, what do you, how can I respond to you 
in this season, throughout the seasons of our life. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know if that feels like God's word is trying to pry something out of your hands that you're trying to hold on to and keep control of. But, but my concern is, regardless of how you feel about this, is that we have been trained to think about this completely backwards. I mean, exactly backwards. Namely, that we see time in terms of my sovereignty over every season and God's responsibility to me in every season. Now, there's no shortage of evidence for this, but I hope to demonstrate it to you. But the first thing I want to point out is, is just one observation about the health of our nation, the wealthiest nation on earth. In this country, anxiety disorders, first of all, are the most common mental health diagnosis in, in the country. And then according to the, the World Health Organization, we are the most anxious nation on earth. 31% of the population struggling with anxiety in their lifetime. And this is not to shame anyone who struggles with anxiety or has or will struggle with anxiety. I just want to expose one of the factors that may very well be contributing to it because we all want freedom from our any number of mental health disorders, myself included. And, and I think it has everything to do with how we think about and talk about the thing we think about and talk about most. Time. With time. Because whatever else can be said about the most used word in, or noun in the English language, it, it's, it can at least be said that whatever the Bi whenever the Bible refers to that word time, it is not talking about the same thing we're talking about. And... and to the degree that is built in as a kind of confusion in our worldview, it's going to inhibit us from living in the freedom of God's truth. So let me just demonstrate this to you. Um, in a book called Metaphors We Live By, uh, it was written by a guy named George Lakoff. He's a linguist and philosopher. And uh, it's actually a fascinating book. He, he looks at the, the relationship between language and worldview. Between language and worldview. The way you view the world. You know, you don't view the world the same way people who were raised in India view the world, for example. For them, time is cyclical. You know, you're going to be reincarnated, and, and everything is, on, uh, is in a circle. Uh, but we, we view time in a, in a different way. And, and the, the whole premise of the book is if you want to understand a culture's worldview, you can't depend on dictionary definitions of time. Because de those definitions are given in a vacuum. They don't have a context. And so you end up with a definition like this. The measured or measurable period during which an action process or condition exists and continues. Now, that's true enough, but that's just not the way we think about time or speak about time. Because we don't think about time out of the context of everything else. And so the theory is, if you really want to know how people think about time, time or any of these big world building concepts, you have to think about it, you have to examine how they use it in everyday language. Follow me here, you're going to catch on, I promise. Okay? You have to ask, how do they actually use it in everyday language? And when you do that, what you'll find is that we string together metaphors to make sense of our world. Okay? Images. And, and, and when you start to see how all of those string together, what you will find is the controlling metaphor. So I have a pop quiz for you this morning. 
Because I think you guys will be able to detect what is our controlling metaphor for time. How do we really look at time? And then we'll be able to examine it in relation to this text. Okay, so, so look for, imagine the controlling metaphor, and I'll just give you a few examples of how we use time that will be familiar to you, that don't look anything like that dictionary def definition. We talk about spending time, saving time, buying time, unplanned situations costing us time, or people costing us time, right? Wasting time, investing time, living on borrowed time, budgeting time, not having enough time, not having as much time left. And of course, we're always running out of time. So what do you think the controlling metaphor for time is? Time is money. There you go. You got it. Give yourself an A. And if you didn't get it, cheat off the person who did, okay? Time is money. Now, let me ask you, what's the, pro what's the problem with thinking about time as a renewable resource that we have, a commodity that we have, a, a, a possession that we have? What's the problem with thinking about time as money? Yes, yes, yes. Everybody. It's nothing like money. That's the problem. Time is nothing like money. Money, first of all, is something that you have to earn. Time is a handout. We're all beggars when it comes to time. We just receive time equally. Money is, is something that none of us in this room on a given day has the same amount of. But all of us has the same hours in the day. And all of us got an extra one today. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Most of all, though, and I think most revealing, is that, that money is something we possess. Money is something that we possess, which means that we have control over it. We have property rights to it. And, and, and time is nothing like that. And it's no wonder then, in my mind at least, why we are so chronically anxious we, we've all become full-time property managers with no time off. We're constantly having to manage our time. But the fact is, if we are conditioned to think about time like money, then our whole life is going to feel like one long process of going bankrupt. We're constantly running out of time. Life is constantly being taken away from us. That's how it feels. Blinding us to the truth that it's just the opposite. That time is constantly being given to us as a gift. We didn't earn a cent. We don't have a, a storehouse of it. Every moment is a miracle of life. Every moment you are at the fingertip of God who said, Be, continue to have life and breath. And, and it's not dependent on you. Or on me to sustain your life and your breath. Life is the ongoing gift from the Lord of time who is never in short supply. But, but our very worldview is blind to this truth. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, this has been the case. Remember how Genesis begins. He talks about, we, we were given dominion over creation, right? But there was another created thing given to rule. And it was the sun, or the greater light and the lesser light. They were given to rule the day and the night. They were given for signs 
and for seasons. You see, time is not something we possess. Time is something that possesses us. And that's the way you need to think about it. We were made in God's image as beings in time. Human life, when you think of God's image, don't think of Instagram, don't think of a selfie. You're not a snapshot, you are a motion picture. And life in God's image is a process of becoming. It's a process by which we reflect God's character one another in this dramatic demonstration of love that, that mimics the, the creation of life where we give of ourselves for the sake of others. And, and God created us to live in the rhythms of time and the seasons of this world in response to this gift of life, gift of time that we've been given. But the more we think, this is kind of the diagnostic work that we need to think about. The more you think about time as something you possess, like, like the future should unfold according to your will, the less you are going to understand what, first of all, your responsibility in time is, and the more likely you are going to live in a constant state of disappointment, of a, a future and a world that is utterly indifferent to your will, that, that, that simply does not unfold according to your plans and your will. And, 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 and this is going to be, this can lead to all matter of crises of faith and emotional, psychological, spiritual state, especially when you find yourself being forced out of some comfortable season that you've spent so much time and energy ensuring would never change, you know, convincing yourself that you're entitled to it, right? And, and then you're thrust into some new season where you hardly even know who you are because your identity has been so dependent on the circumstances of a yesterday that's never coming back. Am I talking to anybody right now? Okay. Be because the, that, that, these changing seasons, they, they can come as, as slowly as your hair turns gray, or they can come as, as suddenly and unpredictably as lightning. A phone call at midnight, an email from a supervisor, test results from a lab. And when that happens, you are going to be confronted, or have been, surely you have, with the world and people that are just out of your control. And then you have to stand up and reorient yourself, really from one of two vantage points. Either everything's out of control, the world's a chaos, God and everyone else has let us down, disappointed us, failing in their responsibilities to us, you know. We, we might not say that explicitly, but we can detect it in the resentment, in the bitterness, in, in the, the low-hanging just disappointment that, that we, in self-pity that we can carry with us, you know. I'm, I'm not saying this to accuse anyone. I'm trying to help you see what's maybe some of the causes of your distress and mine. And, and, and that will lead to our preoccupation, not with discerning our responsibility in a given season or time, but with standing in judgment over the season, you know, and trying to con construct a narrative of what is happening and what should be happening and who's to blame. And what, you know what I'm saying? It's, you become this, 
you're lord, trying to lord over time. And, and then people, and that affects your relationships. And it makes you judgmental. It's not a good thing to be the lord of time if you're not the lord of the universe, you know. And so, and so, so we can either do that where we just stand up and think everything is out of control. Or we can stand on the truth of God's word that God, everything is under God's control. And, and that includes the evil people do, the evils of this world. I, I think sometimes we try to make excuses for God and say, well, it wasn't his will to do evil. And it wasn't. God has a perfect will, and none of us live in that perfectly. But God has a permissive will, and he allows everything to happen that happens. And, and that can bring us into distress about what it says about God's character. But, but what are we left with if we don't just recognize that God allowed this to happen? What you are left with is a world that escapes the will of God, that is not under the power of God. So how in the world could it ever be redeemed by God? You see, everything is permitted within the will of God. And because of that, you know, everything can be redeemed. As it says in this passage, that he will make everything beautiful in its time. Everything. And when, when you start to have that perspective with every new season... Good or bad, you can say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you on earth? There's nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but the Lord is my strength and my portion forever. The Lord is my refuge in a world of constant change. See, when you surrender to God's sovereignty, you cast off the weight of all those things outside of your control that are typically proportional to the scope of the world you are trying to control, are they not, right? And that causes so much stress. And, and the things that you deeply care about, because God has placed eternity in your heart, this text says. He has given you a capacity to care for literally everything. And, but God uses precisely your big God-sized cares and lack of control to draw you to himself. The one who is in control, who can do something about the, the issues in this world. And, and every season can become a new invitation to, to draw near to God, to cast your burdens upon him. As it says in 1 Peter, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. He does care for you. And, and those anxieties are crushing to you, but they, don't, they can't tr crush him. Okay? And he can do something about it. And over time, if you make that your impulse in every season, that becomes a kind of habit. It will form not only a life of prayer, but a life of discernment. You'll start to really understand the things that are within your control and your responsibilities and the things that aren't. And you can, you can reserve the right not to care about every stinking headline you see on the news. It, wouldn't that be a freeing thing if you realize you actually don't have to care about everything and everyone because you're not big enough to? You can't do anything about most of the stuff you read coming through your news feed anyway. And then you can focus where you can make a difference because you can make a difference Amen. within the scope that God has given you responsibility. And so as that happens you, and you entrust more to God, you start to grow in your trust for him 
And, and that begins, you begin to find the one where you really can find rest for your soul. And say things like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is renewed day by day. I want to grow up to be able to say that when I'm an old man, you know, because I'm not old yet, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so God, God is sovereign over the seasons, and, and we're responsible to simply to our response to him. And the other reason that's good news, by the way, is that means no matter how bad you mess up in this season or any past season or future season for that matter, you can never mess up so bad that a new season becomes impossible. You are always within the scope of God's redemption when you realize that you're not bound to the past that you've made. You're bound to the time that God gives you. And God can bring spring anytime. As Marcia said in our prayer meeting on Tuesday, sooner or later, spring is coming. Okay? Because God's in control. The wind blows wherever it wills. Right? That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. And so, okay, so what about our responsibility then? If, if God is sovereign, then what's left for us to do? But this is a category error. A lot of times people think that God's sovereignty is in opposition to human freedom, to, to free will. Like it negates free will and leads us to a kind of fatalism. But it's precisely the opposite. It leads into true freedom because it reveals the fact that we do actually have freedom. It's just not over the world and everything that's outside of our control. It reveals precisely the fact that the only thing we have freedom over is our own will. As small as that may be to everyone else, it's a big deal for you and your spiritual state, your emotional state, your psychological state, to know you always have the freedom for how you respond to God and respond to each season of your life. No, we can't always get what we want or do what we want, but we can always do what's right. You have the power by God to do what's right, by the power of the Holy Spirit especially. And, and we, we can do the one thing in this text, the one, the one principal thing we're called to do in this text in every season, which is to do good as long as we live. I perceive that there's nothing better for people than to be joyful and to do good as long as we live. And even that we should regard as a gift from God, particularly the being joyful part. But do you see what it's saying? It, first of all, it begins with a rem reminder. We're not going to, there's nothing we can gain. We're not adding to God's sovereign plan. So you can lay down the weight of the world, Atlas. You know, you, you don't have to bear that burden, thank God. And, and yet, there are things for us to do, and it's always a calling to do good as long as we live. You see, God did not put you in the world with a responsibility of transforming the world. God put you in the world to transform you. And that happens by you taking up your responsibility in every season. We can't will a fallen world to be good, but we can will to do good in a fallen world. And the world needs more of that, right? And as we do that, we are transformed through this journey of life. Again, as motion pictures being conformed to the image of God's Son, as Paul says in Romans 8. And are we always going to do good? Well, did Solomon always do good? <laughs> I mean, it took him till the end of his life to realize this, you know. 
he's, you know, after he's spent all his money and had all his concubines and, and spent his whole life in hedonism, he then finally discovers there's far more joy in living to please God than there is in living to please himself. And that's what God had promised in, in, in chapter 2, verse 26. The one who pleases God, God has given knowledge and wisdom and joy. And it's repeated here again in, in chapter 3. Enjoyment and pleasure is the gift of God. And again, that's, that comes as a reward for, for taking up our responsibility. I, I can't help but think that so much of our distress in this life really comes, it doesn't actually come from the seasons we're in as much as it comes from resisting the seasons that we are in. Resi- it, it, because we feel like we're in control and, and things ought not be the way they are. But there's so much peace that comes in the resignation that we're not in control. We have a little bit, right? We, we have a big influence on our family, our neighbors, community. You know, you can vote for the president once every four years, okay? You got some influence. But, but don't spend your time worrying about all of those things so far outside your sphere of influence that you just live a miserable, anxious life because of those things. That's avoidable. And, and the more we resist, you know, the seasons that we're in, the, the more we will we will miss the opportunities and the invitations that come from God in every season. So, um, we need to wrap up. Next week, we will uh, theoretically come back to this and, uh, and look more concretely at the, the types of seasons and responsibilities that God gives us. But um, uh, I'm going to skip that. Oh, never mind. We're good. Really? It felt like 45. I don't know what it felt like to you. My passage of time is going slow. Yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, let me just say this then. Okay. <laughs> let me give you the principle. If, if you want to, because the question is, well, how do you discern? It's not always black and white, is it? You, you don't always know what to do, right? Well, in chapter 8, we actually get a kind of principle for living here. In, in discerning and navigating the seasons. And it says this, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the right way. For there's a proper time and way for everything, even though a man's trouble lies heavy on him. Now notice what it says. It begins with, well, you can know some black and white, because if you begin with God, God's commands, that gives you plenty to do on a given day, Right? Okay, so, so there are some black and whites out there. They're called God's commands. And for us as followers of Jesus, read the Sermon on the Mount, and that'll give you a life's worth of stuff to do and not do, okay? <laughs> and, don't, and as a follower of Christ, you know, when you mess up, that you, have, you fall into the safety net of grace. So you don't have to try to do everything, fail, and then discover, oh man, I'm under God's judgment. You are under God's judgment. You're guilty, but you're not condemned in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. But you have plenty to do, and the world needs us to have a Lord and to be obedient to the Lord and to own it when we're not so that they don't confuse us with our Christ with his witnesses, which happens all the time throughout our history. But then it goes on, and it says that the wise heart will know the proper time in the right way. This is more about the discernment of the seasons. This is when it's not so clear what we should do 
This is what, it comes out of the heart. It comes, I think, I think they're related in this sense. Obedience to God's command, a constant turning of your heart to God in, in submission and obedience is, is a way of the heart becoming wise in the process of your formation. It's like a child who grows up listening to his father's instruction and following his example. He begins to understand the principles that, that the father operates from and the purposes for, for the commands. They, you know, right now I'm just telling my kids, do this, don't do this. And when they ask why, I say, because I said so. You don't understand the big picture yet. You're not ready. Sometimes I try to explain, but it never really works. Sometimes it does. But, but when the son gets older, he finds himself in some situation. The father's not around. Maybe the father's dead. But he doesn't need to ask the father anymore what to do because he knows exactly what his father would do. He spent his life listening to his father, following his example. And, and the wise heart, you see, the wise heart is one who listens to the instruction of God over time. And you start to understand the way God is. You start to know the character of God. And that God's character starts to be molded in you, and you know how to live. You know how to treat people. You know how to. You know what it means for everyone to have infinite dignity. That that this God would come and die for people. That that sits deeply in your heart, and you know there are certain things that you would never say or do to another person. Never say about another person. You know that because your hearts become wise. That's what it's saying. That's, that's, that's the heart of it. So, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's put eternity in man's heart. What is that? I don't know if we can fully define what that means. He's placed eternity in man's heart. I think maybe it's supposed to be left to mystery. But one thing I know is this. Is that it indicates there is some compatibility between us and God. That makes us different from all other creatures. That, that enables a sharing of heart between God and us. That's nothing short of a miracle that's given to us. And, and, and we are called into the life of God and to listen to the word of God and to be part of this beautiful creation that God is continuing to craft, making everything beautiful in its time. In its time. We don't have to rush past God's work. We just have to be responsive to it. So I want to just leave you with two examples, okay, from my own life about the unexpected danger of a new season, okay, because this is, this is about discerning the time. And remember, seasons can be everything from a, a new job, a new family situation, a new spiritual state. You have dry seasons, you have, you know, spring seasons of the soul. You could have dark nights of the soul. This could be a transition out of school and into a career, getting married, having kids, all of that. All of these represent seasons. And new se every season comes with potential dangers, but also potential joys. So first, the danger of a season. Let me give you one example. I am currently on day 308 of a one-year fast from alcohol. Um, you may remember a while back, I had an incident at a trampoline park where I was acting younger than I apparently am, and it, uh, it led to about a year and a half long period of chronic back pain, pretty severe. There were points where I couldn't walk even 100 yards to the end of my 
cul-de-sac. And I was, I was going insane. Now, pr- prior to that season, uh, I didn't really have a conviction about drinking because I could do it, you know, socially, have a glass of wine or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and, and then after I became immobile and in constant pain, I found that, that my social drinking became an isolated situation. And this was just a couple years ago as a pastor of this church. It became a, a coping mechanism. And uh, with both the conviction of the Holy Spirit and my holy wife, <laughs> I soon realized I, I needed to become more intentional about adapting to the season responsibly. Right? Because I was, I was maladapting to the season. Because seasons can come and transform you in the wrong way, right? And, and so I contacted Steve Robinson, the, the chair of the board here, and, and I told him, hey, I need to be accountable to you. I'm going to give this up for a year, and, and then if God continues to convict, we'll go from there. But if not, I just need to do this for the sake of my soul, for the sake of my wife, and for the sake of my family, for the sake, sake of this community. Because I know where that path leads. I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life, in my own History, I know where that can, can take me, could take all of us. And so, do I think everybody shouldn't drink? No, I don't. I think it's a conviction matter because Scripture, it's not a black and white matter, you see? It's what James 4 says, whoever knows what is right, the right thing to do, and, and does not do it, for him it is sin. You see, there are some things that are sin for you that are not for others. That's not moral relativism. Because we still have a whole bunch of black and white commands. But sometimes, by the conviction of the Spirit, you're supposed to do things that others don't, aren't called to do and not do things that others are. And, and the more you engage with God like that, the more you are engaging in a personal relationship with a personal God, with a living God. And so there are unexpected temptations and dangers with every season. Your temptation as a teenager is not the same as your temptation as an you know, 80-year-old. But there are temptations in every season. So, like I said, we'll come back to this next week. And then unexpected joy. Okay, I'm ending here. First time Kelly and I got pregnant, mainly Kelly, uh, I, had a, I had a very strange and specific fear. I literally was afraid that I was going to love my dog more than I loved my firstborn child. <laughs> now, the reason uh, was I had no precedent for fatherhood. I didn't know what it was like to have a, a, a child. I had no idea that there was actually joy in fatherhood, that joy was part of the, the mix, and, and I really loved my dog. <laughs> Frankly, I, I loved my dog more than every other child on earth. I'm, okay, I know that sounds like I'm a psychopath, but... All it really means is I'm honest as every man who hasn't had children yet, okay? Because kids just aren't that impressive to people who don't have kids, or at least guys, or at least me, okay? Maybe I am the only psychopath in here. I mean, I knew kids were more valuable than my dog. I just wasn't as affectionately, you get what I'm saying, right? So, so, but Kelly became pregnant, and, you know, for that nine months, it was like, 
<laughs> it's like I'd almost forget. She, oh yeah, you're pregnant. And I would think, oh man, am I going to love this? But I was committed. I was committed to being a father and at least acting like I love my kid more than my dog. <laughs> well, when Keswick was born, I started to treat my dogs like dogs. Okay? I didn't know. I just didn't know that this season, what this season would bring. I never looked forward. I never in my, this is why I tell high school students who say, I never want to have kids. I say, you may never want to produce children, but you actually can't know if you want kids until you have them because there's no precedent for that experience. I didn't know the depth of love. That, I mean, I didn't know how tangibly you could actually see the living image of God in a person until I had my kids. We, we started having kids. And, and, and it came with this whole new set of experiences and relationships. It was mixed with exhaustion and duty, of course, both kinds of duty, in fact. <laughs> but, but also this, this whole new depth of love and texture to life that's, that's amazing. And, and the more I tapped into that, the more I leaned into the season of fatherhood, the more I began to actually like it and, and, and see myself in that capacity, I became changed. I've changed. I'm just not the person I was. God has changed me. And, and, he, and he has taken a life, if you just knew me before, and he's made something beautiful in, this, in a family. And, uh, and, and then, you know, we start, and when Kelly got pregnant again, I literally thought, oh, what if I don't love my second child as much as my first you know, maybe only as much as the dogs, right? <laughs> but then we had Riser, and it was the same intensity, but just as new and unique. And then we had two more kids. And, and with each kid, it was like this unprecedented joy where love revealed to be elastic. And, and, and it's not like a pie that you, you're losing. It's, it's this thing that expands because it's infinite. It comes from the infinite God. And the joys of it come from the infinite God as you lean into the season. And, and now Kelly and I, parent of four children, um, you know, there's times for war and times for peace, right? <laughs> and there's bedtimes and meal times. And most of the time, we don't even want to kill them, all right? Okay? We're real about it, right? The joys come with all kinds of struggles. But you lean into the season, and God makes beautiful in its time. Now, I can't help but wonder how many fathers run off who never got to see what it could have been. You know? They didn't lean into the season. How many babies are killed because parents just don't know what they're missing, right? How many families, mom and dad are home, but they're basically absent because they're not leaning into the season. You see, lean into the season God has for you. You will be miserable trying to have one foot out the door no matter what. But what does it say? That, that joy comes to those who live to please God. It's all a gift from God. Stop being like Solomon, if you are, looking to find your own joy. It doesn't work. Lean into the season God has for you. And watch as God makes everything beautiful in its time. Let's stand together. Have the worship and prayer team come forward. I don't know what season you're in, but remember from the scripture reading what Jesus said. 
you know, we are kind of doing time here, and we're all, it's going to kill us. <laughs> we're here till we die. Remember what Jesus said when he came? He has come to set the captives free, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. We are all in this situation knowing that God can radically change our lives today. Today is the time. Now is the time of salvation, it says in God's word. And so wherever you are, whatever season you're in, I encourage you, if God has stirred your heart and you want prayer, come and, and someone on the prayer team will pray for you. And today can be a stake in the ground. Today can be a turning point where you say, God, I'm letting God be the Lord of time, the Lord of the seasons. And I want to lean in to whatever God has for me. He does have something for you. He has life for you. He has joy for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the sovereign power that is used only for perfect love. You're the only one who can be trusted with absolute power. And you funnel it all into the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who laid it down, emptied himself of it, so he could die for us, to take on our sins, to give us hope for new life, this life and the next. There is nothing in this life that cannot be redeemed. We believe that you make everything beautiful in its time. Make us, make our souls and our hearts beautiful today in Jesus' name. Amen. Put this blessing on you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a responsibility called the ministry of reconciliation. Go, be reconciled to God and to others. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>